Welcome back to the Hey Roadie podcast, where we take a deep dive into the people of the Ocean State. We are your hosts, Nick and Sasha. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful day, obviously. Imagine if I was like, hi, everyone. I hope you're having a terrible day. I hope you're having a god-awful day today. No, I hope you guys are having a good day. Honestly, we had a great day. We got to interview someone really cool. Um, her name is Deborah Goodrich-Royce, and she is an author and one of the owners of The Ocean House, which if you've never been to The Ocean House, it is a beautiful resort-style hotel with spa, restaurants, obviously like lodging um, that overlooks like the beautiful cliff of Watch Hill. Oh my God, it's so beautiful and luxurious. And Deborah is we talked a little bit about the Ocean House, but we talked more, I think, about her um, career as a writer, which I was very interested to hear about. So I'm glad we we did it that way. Yeah, and kind of the build up from yeah. uh, you know going to school overseas, mm-hmm. and then um, doing some acting, yeah. and then doing some screenplay editing, and doing yeah. her hand at screenplay writing, and you know how it all kind of came to fruition. Yeah, it's really cool. So she writes um, books that are she has kind of invented a genre called identity thrillers, which I think is awesome. Um, some of the books that she has um, out currently are Finding Mrs. Ford and Ruby Falls. She has a new book coming out um, in January. I know this is kind of early to be promoting it, but mark it on your calendars called Reef Road. Um, yeah, she was so fun. She talked about like how she uses the location she's actually been and lived in as location settings for her books, which I thought was really cool. Um, and she was explaining why that's like important to do that. And I don't know. I really liked in talking to her. I had a really good time. And it was, uh, I mean, one of the conversations that I have a little more to say on, mm-hmm. I think I used to read a ton when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I haven't read anything in the last <laughs> 10 probably, years. <laughs> no, probably the last four, give yeah. or take. I haven't read much. I, d- I have done some audio um, yeah. books but like i used to you know there was a point where it was just getting too expensive i would be like i'm gonna i'm gonna unplug from the internet and watching tv and i'm yeah. just gonna read all these books and i'd go and buy like five books and it would cost me like a hundred and something dollars and then i'd read all five of them in two weeks oh, and i geez. was like this isn't sustainable at yeah, all that's not sustainable that's not the problem i have i buy so many books and they just stare at me at my on my bookshelf They're when like, i start reading i just crush oh i don't i need to get better at it i think i have like a little bit of um add and i can't pay attention like, well that's I the same thing attention. i do with a tv show yeah. like if i start a show like if mm-hmm. a new season comes out of something i will if it came out this weekend i'm watching the entire thing this weekend did you finish the bear yet no, I haven't. Oh, it's so good. You got to watch it, guys. If you haven't seen The Bear, you should watch it. It's really good. Jeremy Allen White is a hottie. Anyway, back to Deborah. Um, no, it was really fun getting to talk to her about, yeah, like Nick said, she um, was an actress. And then from acting, she got into writing and editing. And now she's a novelist. And she has a book author series that she hosts at the Ocean House um, every Wednesday, which is really cool, where she highlights a different author, some local, some global, Um so I, I I always find it really cool when I when we get to meet people who are like bringing new things. I mean, she's bringing a ton of new stuff to Rhode Island because she's literally like one of the top tourist attractions mm-hmm. in the state. So she's just bringing business for all of the state. But even just the the author series is cool because it's like you know sh- shining a light on both local and global art um, writers and getting to talk about um, their stories. And she really loves. Um, to talk with um, 
I just lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're talking about she how loves ADD. To speak with authors. She loves. Thank you, Nick. You're she loves to speak welcome. with authors and learn about their stories. And yeah, it just seems really cool. I definitely want to check it out. Um, uh, some when I make the trek all the way down to, to watch. <laughs> oh, all the way down to watch. <laughs> when Hill. I pack an overnight bag <laughs> and try to watch it. Yeah, the only reason I've ever been down to watch Hill is to do photo shoots. Yeah, so. it's it's so great. I mean, we. I was lucky enough to go to a lunch with Elise, our our editor in chief at the Ocean House. It was such a cool experience. Like it feels like you walk in and people are like saying hi to you and everyone's happy and like the the Ocean House this is really beautiful iconic like butter yellow color mm-hmm. and like there's a history behind it and I wanted to ask Deborah about it and I forgot. But you know, they had to like scout a, a, and find this like tr- because when it was first built, it was like this butter yellow and finding that exact color was so hard. And it's just like, it's such a beautiful big building with ocean views and garden views. I don't know. It's very cool. Yeah, it is. It's a really pretty place. And they rebuilt it to be, um, you know, uh, to resemble what they viewed as its, its heyday. Yeah. Um, which I believe she said was the early 1900s. Yep. Um, and they were very um, exacting about making sure things were period correct mm-hmm. and all that, which I think goes a long way, um, Even especially the, the in Rhode Island. Even the height of the of the roof, they because they, they kept the windows the same size. Yeah, they don't have big vaulted they ceilings or make, anything in there. Yeah, yeah, which I thought is so interesting. And like the attention to detail is like insane. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we had so much fun with her. We would love to have her back on. Um, maybe when her new book comes out in, in January. Yep, she's very was very interesting. She's had a very interesting life, mm. and uh, I think everybody will enjoy her story. Yes, and read her books. And here's your here's your uh, here's your rules for this episode: go drive to the Ocean House, <laughs> get a lunch, and listen to this podcast while you're sitting at lunch, looking over the ocean. Perfect. And enjoy yourself. Relax, yeah. baby. Yes, enjoy everybody. Bye. Hi there. <laughs> Hi. It's so good to have you on. We're here with um, Deborah from Ocean House, author. You've you have so many things that we have to go over that I feel like this uh, this conversation is going to just like slowly get into like all of the things. Does that work for you? That works for me. It's because I'm so much older than you that uh-huh. I've done all these things. <laughs> no, it's because you're multi talented and you. I mean, clearly based off of the stuff that I've read so far and just our you know our short conversation since you've been here, you, you're, I don't know. It's just like, you can tell you have direction, you know what you're doing and I need to learn from you. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Again, I'm older than you are. So I hope I've found a little direction over the years. Well, so obviously we're, you know, we just told you we're a Rhode Island based podcast. Hey, Rhodey podcast, but I want to know where it all started. So you're originally from Michigan. Yeah. I grew up in suburban Detroit and in the Mm -hmm. grand old American tradition, my parents weren't from there. My mother had come from Pennsylvania. Okay. My father had come from Tennessee, but Detroit was really land of the job. Mm -hmm. Even though my parents were not in the automobile industry, Every single thing in and around Detroit really served mm. that that larger complex. So I grew up there, and um, we were talking about wanting to get out of home. Yeah. I was itching to get out of there. So I ended up going to college in eastern Ohio, which okay. seemed like you know my first eastward move. I went to a very small women's college mm-hmm. called Lake Erie College that had been a pioneer in the academic term abroad. And I was Mm -hmm. dying to go to Europe. I know that is surprising for a lot of young people today. People travel 
yeah. much more freely. This was the 70s. I'd never been to Europe. I, I wanted to go. So this school really had a program that addressed that. Mm. So I went there and um, then I went to Paris in my junior year. And then the weirdest thing happened, which kind of sounds made up. I was back in Cleveland getting ready to finish up school and um, a movie came to town. It was a big United Artists picture yeah. called Those Lips, Those Eyes, which sounds a little weird, but <laughs> <laughs> that is a lyric from a song from yep. summer stock musicals of a hundred years ago. So this was a musical starring Frank Langella, who is still working and well-known, and Tom Hulse, who has stopped working as an actor, but you'd remember him from Amadeus. He mm. played Mozart oh, in that film. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So uh, I was cast as a background dancer. And the choreographer was very friendly and invited me, probably too friendly, I don't know. <laughs> Looking back. <laughs> Looking, yeah. Uh, you know, with the, with the, uh, the understanding I have now yeah, of many yeah, things. Yeah. He kept inviting me to come to New York and audition for him. Mm -hmm. And so when I finished college, I did just that. I, and was not cast. I <laughs> came you got to, to go to New York. <laughs> got to go to New York. And uh, yeah, that was kind of how I ended up, you know, that was kind of the end of the line yeah. when I got to New York. To New York. Did mm. you, when you were in school, obviously the traveling part was a big component. What did you, what was your major? French and Italian. Oh. I, I majored in the overall subject was called modern foreign languages. Okay. So mine were really French and Italian. It was yeah. a very small school. Mm. So it was the kind of school where I could, you know, have a little hand in designing my independent studies. Yeah. I guess more like what people would do now. Mm -hmm. uh, now that we have COVID. Yeah, everything. yeah, right. You can do different classes. You can do remote. Yeah. You can try different things that you might not know you're interested in. Did you ever growing up have like the actor bug? Or was this just like randomly like, oh, I'll give it a shot? No, I think I did. I yeah. had uh, acted in plays all through school, mm -hmm. really elementary, junior high and high school. Mm -hmm. And when I got to college, again, I was a foreign language major, but I was a dance minor. Oh, and yeah, okay. So be, there's some performance there. And being such a small school, mm -hmm. I was in a lot of plays and I didn't have to be a theater major. Mm -hmm. I think at larger universities, you kind of have to stick in your department. I yeah. didn't have to do that. Oh, that's cool. Because mm -hmm. then you got to really like spread your wings and try things. And then when this movie came to town, it was kind of like you could dance, you have that performance bug. Hey, you can speak some French and some Italian if they need you to. That's right. I'm sure yeah. that I'm sure in the long run of working as an actress, that probably helps being able to speak other languages, right? So I'm going to tell a very funny story about a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Ken Tiger, and Ooh. he's an actor mm -hmm. in his 70s. Now, this is a guy who went to Harvard three times, his undergraduate work, his master's degree, and his PhD in German studies wow. from Harvard. That, yeah. And then Ken became an actor <laughs> through his 20s, his 30s, his 40s, his 50s, his 60s. In his 70s, he was cast playing Himmler in Man in the High Castle. Oh my God. And he did a lot of it in German. And I was able to say to him, so Ken, that college you degree really paid off. <laughs> finally paid off. Thank God that 50 you years had later. That. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. I um, probably had to brush up a little bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> Do some extra reading, extracurricular. Oh, he could have taken a remote class like just to brush up True. on it. Where, but isn't that, that hilarious? Now. 50 years later. That is so funny. for me, did I ever act in 
in French or Italian? No. I've used a little of it in my books, though. I've had yeah. characters who speak a little bit of this or that, you know, a sentence here mm. or there. What was your time? I'm also, I love to travel. When I was in school, like in my teen years, we had like a high school program where if you took like AP French, you could go to this like big Europe trip, which I did, which was so fun. Actually, I don't even know if you needed to be in AP French, but you, whatever. Anyway, it was so fun. And I've, that was the first time I went. And I haven't been back since. And I'm just like chomping at the bit to go back, not even to Paris specifically, but I just love Europe. I love the feeling. I love the cobblestone, the old buildings. You can be walking down the, the road and you turn around and all of a sudden you're like in front of a very historic, unbelievably beautiful piece of architecture. So I just wonder like when you went to Paris, did it, was it like life changing? So that's a really good question. I thought I knew more than I really knew mm. when that was all organized. So my college had specific centers in Germany, in France, in Italy, Spain, and so on. And I thought I knew better. So they went to- Don't we always? <laughs> I think that's part of being, like part of your job as a college kid is to know better than everybody right. else. So, th so it was still a girl's school when yep. I was there. And I say girls, I know I'm supposed to say women because we were 20, but- mm. I think Those we were girls. girls. Yeah. So the girls were mainly going to Caen, which is in Normandy, and Grenoble, which is down in near the Alps. And I petitioned to go to Paris by myself. Oh, no. And, <laughs> you know, it really wasn't a good plan. Yeah. I was very lonely. Mm. Uh, my dad had just died. Mm. I had so, probably some depression mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. I ended up, I was in a program. I wasn't really doing much. I, I did a little traveling. The whole experience, I, I think back on it, it was kind of sad and under par. Mm -hmm. I loved Paris very much. And my first husband grew up there. So what was really weird is 10 years after I had been there yeah. in, in kind of a sad context. I went back with him and then our growing young family, and it was a completely different experience. It different was kind of like getting back on the horse that threw you. Yeah. And I absolutely love Paris, but cities like that, are, are it was winter too. Mm. It's hard. Oh, that to, must have been so hard. It, it, there's nothing like being lonely Alone, in a city. A young woman yeah. in a city. Probably, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure for the first time you were by yourself in a city that didn't speak. I mean, I, I know you took language as your major, but I'm sure you weren't like ripping, roaring, ready to go speak to right. every random French person in fluent French. You know right. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So doing that by yourself as a young woman, man, that's, that's a, that's a lot. It's a lot. And I think back and I think, what were they thinking at that school? <laughs> Why did they let me do that? It was a very bad idea. Yeah. And you can't, I feel, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know now it's easier with Wi-Fi. You can always mm -hmm. like text someone or email someone. But like there was a time when you had to have like a special phone that could call special places. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Now I'm going to sound like I'm 350 <laughs> years old. But I'm going to tell you how I called my mother. It was on Wednesdays. Yeah. I had to take a series of buses to the post office oh next to the American Express office. And it took half a day for the whole thing. I had to write down and submit the number and then go sit and wait, and then they had to call you. Yeah, and I would go in a booth, oh. and I could talk to my mother. They had to make the connection for yeah, you. Yeah, it oh. was OMG. talk about the lack of spontaneity. <laughs> yeah, no, it so really you couldn't live like you know as a young woman. I know for me, like if I'm ever feeling homesick or I'm ever feeling you know 
whatever. Like I can call a friend or I can call my mom or whatever. And not being able to do that by yourself in this new city in the winter. It was, it's yeah. also like, I know it sounds crazy now, but even like when we were kids, like cell phones are a very yeah. new thing. They are. Like totally. I had a pager when I was a kid. Like, right. And that was pretty high tech then too. But like, it was so normal to not be able to just call Talk to somebody. someone. Yeah. Like we, we would just leave the house and you came home when you came home. <laughs> That's that exactly it. right. Yeah. And you know, it's something that writers will use mm. if, if we're working on something where we do not want ready access to yeah. other people. We yeah. have to set something to, in an earlier time because you, you start to have some natural limits. Yeah. To- yeah that's why they did. Um, so the, the show stranger things on Netflix, mm-hmm. that's why they said it in the eighties was because they knew the p- major plot hole in horror movies is like, why don't you just call, somebody? call someone? Exactly. Yeah. And so they exactly. said it then when you, when everybody has CB radios and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But wow, that's, I, well, I've thought about that, but I'm not a writer and I've never written anything that needs like a solid storyline, but that would be so troubling to start writing something and be like, Oh, well this person just calls. Someone. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like that stinks. <laughs> like what the heck? That's yeah. a roadblock. Or they or, used to set them in like a remote cabin in the woods where mm, you couldn't get service or something. <laughs> well, also then there are things you think about like in my second book, it begins with a child abandoned in a dark cave by mm-hmm. her father, which, which is a tourist attraction. They're there with a bunch of tourists and they turn off the lights. Yeah. And when the lights come back on, the dad is gone. Gone. So I made it in 1968 because otherwise you would have had cameras. You uh-huh. would have had credit card records. Yep. Like they would know. Uh, you would who, be able to track someone who down. Who bought the ticket. Yeah. 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 It, it, it was yeah. a whole lot easier to disappear back then than it is now. Yeah. That's true. Completely. That is true, Nick. Oh, yeah. So really quick, just how long, the first time you were in Paris, how long were you there for? Like a semester? Yes. Okay. So like, what is that? Like three months? It was like December to March, okay. something like that. And then 10 years later, you went back with your young family and mm-hmm. you relived a better experience. Completely. And Completely we ended up different. living there for a year. Mm-hmm. And my daughter, who's 34 now, went to her grandmother's preschool, which was very sweet. That's cool. Yeah. Sweet. That's Mm -hmm. so cool. And I feel like as a kid, it would be, you know, very cool to experience that different culture, right? Because like you come living in the United States, it's, it's you, everyone speaks the same language. If you go, if you live in a certain town, you start knowing everyone. I've Mm -hmm. lived, in Providence for 10 years and I walked down the street I know every single person I see so being somewhere different I feel like it's so good for you know like a kid and I mean like what you were saying about uh being there and the history of it mm-hmm. older buildings things like that um it's I haven't been overseas but it, the stark difference like the United States is a little over 300 years old like places in Europe are thousands of yeah, years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like buildings That's have true. been there for a very long time. There's that. And the thing that I was so shocked by was the proximity of the world. That hit me like a ton of bricks when I first got there because, you know, we really are geographically isolated yeah. here. We border Canada, we border Mexico. And we're huge. And we're massive. And then yeah. we have these vast bodies of water between us and everybody else. And when I first got to Europe, I there was just this sense of of the world history kind of pressing on you. Yeah. We're going back in a couple of weeks. We're taking a whole family trip to Normandy, oh, cool. staying in Deauville. And I was thinking about what's going on in Ukraine and, 
it's a lot closer it's to so them close. than it is close. to us. Totally. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, you hear people talk geopolitical and mm. everybody's talking about uh, governmental issues and, oh, we should try this thing because this, this place does it. But a lot of people don't realize that most countries in Europe as themselves would fit within Texas. Exactly. Like the countries yeah. aren't aren't that big. So like having 300 plus million people in a, a land the size of ours, that's essentially the size of all of Europe is pretty crazy. <laughs> like no, not a lot it of other is, places actually yeah. deal with that. Well, and the other thing too is, is I feel like when you in the United States, if you want to go to Europe, it's a big deal. Like you have to make sure you have your passport. You have to like, I mean, when I went, it was like you had to convert your money into mm -hmm. Europe, like all this stuff. The, the plugs are different. The plugs are different. <laughs> the like plugs there's are different. everything's oh my gosh, so different. Yes. In mm -hmm. Europe, like if you wanna if you go to England and you are there for two weeks and you wanna explore Europe, it's fairly inexpensive to buy a train ticket and go all the way around to see all these different places where travel just isn't that accessible here. Right. And I feel like that adds a whole nother component to like learning about history and being in other cultures and seeing other things that is so exciting. Um, I, I, I love that. I have uh, some friends in Australia uh, that I met through another friend who worked for Disney and uh, it's very commonplace there. And I believe in a lot of other places that when they take vacation, they do it like an entire month at mm -hmm. a time. Right. And, right. Uh, right. They would come here and, you know, spend a uh, three, four, three weeks in the United States and go to like, four or five different places mm -hmm. and they're like i can explore most of europe in less time than it takes me to yeah. explore the united states it's, that's they're, right they're, we're huge well and there's like great public transport everywhere it's easy to get yeah. around like there's a train that literally goes from like italy to paris it probably goes even further everywhere in between but it's it's so it's so connectable it's so like accessible, it's very easy which yeah. is really nice and i feel like having some time there i think is really cool i'm hoping to go there for my honeymoon i'm going on a honeymoon this october Ooh, are are you getting married or have I you got gotten married, married last october but because of covid we decided to like we were like we're already you know testing our luck by having we had a tiny little tiny baby wedding um but we're already testing our luck having a wedding let's not go away so this october it will be a year we're gonna plan a fun trip and i'm trying to go to europe oh nice well congratulations on Thank getting you. married that's Thank exciting you. yes it is exciting. yeah we had a lot of COVID weddings at the ocean house and they yeah. were small and they were mm -hmm. very sweet and I, when i would walk around on the property i would see you know just these little groupings of people mm. and it was it, it was very old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. You know, you think back to uh, World War II or the Depression or any of those time periods, people would get married on a Tuesday morning at home with cake. Yeah, I mean, that with, was with it. 10 mm -hmm. people, maybe. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. you got a slice of cake yeah. and it was time to go. An extravagant wedding was the exception, not the rule. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. and really across the board, people didn't do it. Mm. I mean, maybe if you were royalty or, yeah. or Consuelo Vanderbilt, but I think <laughs> that was about <laughs> it. Yeah, we, we had a pretty small wedding. We For us, us, we're we're very um like low-key people we didn't do like an engagement or anything we just were like we should get married we were to, we've been together march will be 12 years so we've been together a very long time so we're just like let's we should just do it and we just had our immediate family and a couple of our best friends and that was it very nice, nice and simple but we didn't get to go on a trip so i'm hoping that this October, we go on a very big Well, October trip. is a beautiful month in Europe. Right? The weather's gorgeous. It's, weather's you know. gorgeous. And even like, I mean, I'm dying to go to Greece. My best friend just also got married last summer and he did the same thing. He works in a school, so he gets summers off. So he's spending like a whole month just parading around Europe. He went to Greece, Portugal, Italy, France. And I'm just like, 
this is Sounds so good. nice. So Nick, I'm taking a month off. Okay. This is my notice. That I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Um, so in Paris, so you ha- you started your family, and then when did you start to get like the writing bug? So really. Interestingly, mm-hmm. uh, so my first husband and I had our two kids in LA, and acting for me started to kind of fade mm-hmm. as an interest. It was just becoming more complicated. Mm-hmm. And we ended up moving to Paris in, I think, 92. Mm-hmm. And I was hired by a French film studio as a reader yeah. in English. They were mm-hmm. investing money in English language films, mm-hmm. well-known studio still around, Canal Plus. And they needed native English speakers as readers. And all film studios keep readers on the payroll. It's a freelance job. You read a screenplay or a novel. You write you know, five to 10 pages of synopsis of what it's about. So the studio executives don't have to read it. And then you write a page of comments. So what works or doesn't work with the story, with the structure, with Mm. the characters. And the final most important component is comps. They always want to know in the movie business, what is this like? Mm. You know, is Mm -hmm. it Stranger Things meets Godzilla? What are we talking about (laughs) here? (laughs) What do we have? Um, A couple of comps. So that, I had two little kids. I was living in Paris, reading for a living, Mm -hmm. uh, working from home before we we had a term for that. (laughs) And that was really kind of the beginning of the transition for me, the eventual transition to writing. Mm. And when I came back to the States, my first husband was hired by Julia Roberts to run her um, little development company at Mm -hmm. Disney. And I was hired by Harvey Weinstein to be the story editor at Miramax. And a story editor is like a book editor. So that's what I did in the 90s. Yeah, I saw, like, through research, I saw that sort of, like, transition. Like, it would make sense as an actress. You already know, I guess every, excuse me, every actress might be different. Some might just care about the performance. But knowing your history now that you became a writer, I'm sure, like, being an actress, you probably were interested in the writing and the editing of it. So then to make that transition into being the story reader and then a story editor and then a novelist, like, it all kind of, like makes sense. Yeah, it was it was a natural progression and mm. I think being in that editorial seat where you have the opportunity to edit the work of people who really are wonderful and established writers. Yeah. It's very humbling and you you're kind of hustling to mm. get your game up and figure out what would make this better and what can I contribute to this. Mm. Did you begin by trying your hand at screenplays or did you start with novels? I did. So, uh In the early 2000s, I wrote a screenplay. I had this idea, and I kind of wrote a 60-page treatment and then asked a friend of mine uh, who's a screenwriter to write it with me. And I had gone through a divorce, and I was quite shattered by this divorce. I say this. I'm okay now, but I'm sort of (laughs) laughing. But uh, I always try to be very honest about that Mm because that can be a really rough experience Mm -hmm. in a human life. And I got this wacky idea for a screenplay, which I actually just sent to someone who's doing uh, a produced podcast, a very well-known writer mm. who's doing this produced, almost like an old radio place with actors. So I just sent oh, it to her. Cool. So picture Othello meets Bridesmaids. And if you think about Othello, mm-hmm. so the premise of that is jealousy, that niggling doubt of jealousy yep. that starts to eat at a person and really undermine them. And Bridesmaids is actually a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Kristen Wiig's character becomes jealous yep. of 
her best friend's friendship and she starts to behave really badly. So that screenplay was really about a woman who starts to think her husband might be having an affair and she cracks. She decides she doesn't <laughs> want to be a, you know, a reject throwaway husband. She'll kill him. And her efforts to kill him are, are what become really increasingly absurd until it comes <laughs> to a very comedic conclusion. So that's the first thing I really wrote on my own. And, and my writing partner and I got a grant for that yep. uh, from the Massachusetts Arts Council. And then life took a different direction for me. So I put it on a shelf for a long time. Hmm. Just dusted it off recently. Just dusted it off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a full cool. circle moment for that you. That is a full circle. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of full circles happening. Yeah. We, we love like a full circle moment. And, and through getting to speak with a lot of people, very, in in my opinion, very successful, awesome entrepreneurs and people who like really care about their craft, whether it be, you know, arts or or beer or wine or restaurant, whatever. Um, it feels like there's always these things that happen throughout the life. And then like at one point you're like, this makes sense. Like yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm going to tell you the most dramatic full circle. So my second book, Ruby Falls, uh, came out in COVID and my publisher called and asked last year if I wanted to have a billboard in Times Square. And, you know, the author really pays for everything at the uh -huh. end of the day. Mm -hmm. It really gets dinged off the tally. <clears throat> so my question was, um, <laughs> how much is that going to cost? Yeah. Normally, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Put, put traffics down. Yeah. Right? So it was, it was a few thousand dollars. Wow. And I said, you know what? It, we'll never do this again. Yeah. Yes. So I came in with some girlfriends into Times Square, and these were three <sighs> giant electronic billboards over the doorway of 1515 Broadway, which is the Minskoff Theater. Yeah. That was the doorway I went in decades before to audition for that guy. Oh, my God. That choreographer in Ohio. Oh I swear. And I thought- did you know it was going to be there? No, <gasps> I didn't know it would be exactly there. And I thought if I had had a little angel from on high saying to me <laughs> all those decades ago, listen, sweetheart, this isn't going to work out, but don't worry. You'll be back here. <laughs> You'll be For back. For even better reason. Yeah. And like what better reason, you know, like the fact that you were auditioning for some guy, whatever. And now you're back for a book that you wrote. Exactly. That it, it's your story. It's your, exactly. it's coming from you. And like. I mean, I don't know where that guy is, but I would assume having a billboard on in that area is more successful than. Well, and also if if I could convey anything to younger people, it's exactly what you mm. said. It is all full circle. Yeah. You don't know where it's going. Every single thing you're doing is kind of going into who mm. you are and you know, all these components of yourself and you have no idea what's going to pop up later, but it's fascinating. Yeah, that's incredible. So when you decided to start writing like the first book, um, Finding Miss Mrs. Ford, mm -hmm. correct? I, for, for some reason, when I read it, I was like, I wrote down Miss instead of Mrs. And I was like, I can't get, I can't get that wrong. Mm. Um, what was the like the inspiration? Because I know like you, they're thrillers. They're I know specifically um, identity thrillers, which I think is such a. I feel like for this might be like way off base, but I'm just gonna say it anyway. Who the heck cares? I feel like that term for like a man might seem weird because I know I was reading an article. You're like, I know that's not like necessarily a real term, but I feel like as a woman, like I read that and I was like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Yeah, yeah. I think you do know exactly what it means. So it's this idea that people have secrets. Mm -hmm. 
um, I did a TV movie with Mark Harmon about Ted Bundy, mm -hmm. and I played the woman who married Bundy. You know, you examine a character like that, and you think, what on earth is she thinking? And yeah. the only thing I can come up with is she cannot have known or believed. Let's yeah. say she yeah. certainly knew what, what what everyone was saying, but I had to choose the the idea that she didn't believe. So this idea of identity thrillers. We all have secrets. Most of our secrets are really benign, mm. but occasionally you do meet these people whose secrets are, are of a completely different magnitude, and it is completely shattering, mm. unraveling, shocking, whatever word you want to use mm -hmm. when you find these things out. So finding Mrs. Ford, it in 2014, it was kind of a magic moment for me. My youngest child was grown and flown. And for me to really do the deep dive of novel writing, which is very intense and very concentrated, I wasn't able to do it while I was raising my children. Mm. So I'd been writing for a long time. I'd written that screenplay. I was in these writing groups. I, And the writing group forum was very helpful for me because over the years, if you're in a writing group, you start to see what people respond to, mm. what they understand about mm. the way you express yourself, and you, you gain confidence mm. in your own voice. So 2014 was an interesting moment. In the summer, I was here in Watch Hill. ISIS was in the news, really, for the first time. So the war in Iraq was, you know, I'm going to put in, in air quotes, over. Mm -hmm. But then this whole new thing was starting with ISIS. And they were really rampaging over the north of Iraq, around Mosul and that area. And a group of people called the Chaldeans kept popping up in the news. So I'm from Detroit. There are a lot of Chaldeans in Detroit. Detroit, as, as we mentioned earlier, is a gathering place for people from around the world. They came for jobs. So I'm going to have a sip of water. In August of 2014, Finding Mrs. Ford begins when the FBI, two, two uh, agents, show up at the house of Mrs. Ford in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, mm. beautiful, bucolic, seaside, you know, mm -hmm. magnificent coastal house here in this gorgeous state. And it's a sparklingly sunny morning. Mm. And they are there to ask her about an Iraqi Chaldean man called Sammy Fakuri. And she says she doesn't know him. And they say, well, you know, that's kind of funny because he just took a plane from Baghdad to Boston and we picked him up in a car on his way to your house. So you know immediately that she's lying. You don't know why. So you go back to 1979, which is a huge jump in time, 35 years. So she's in her mid-50s now. You go back to 1979. She's a college co-ed co in suburban Detroit. You could not have a more divergent place than 70s Detroit and modern Rhode Island in terms of Detroit was pretty dingy in the 70s. So it's the summer before her senior year. She takes a nice little summer job in a cute little ladies boutique and meets this very wild girl named Annie Nelson, who in time convinces her to quit the, the cute little ladies boutique and get a job as a cocktail waitress in a very sketchy disco on the edge of Detroit mm. that happens to be populated by Iraqi Chaldean men. So that's the setup of Finding Mrs. Ford. Yeah. Why is this guy coming to look for her now? Why is she lying? Mm. And what happened all those years ago? So it goes back and forth, oh, unpeeling cool. this onion of, of 
what this woman is is keeping <sighs> hidden. Oh my god, that sounds yeah. amazing. Very interesting. I can't wait to read that. Um, what is as someone who's right, like you said, it's all encompassing. Like when you start writing a novel, what is that sort of journey like? Like, do you have a story in your head? You plot it out and you're like, okay, this is it. Like, I'm going to really put the time in here. Does that happen a few times before you find Finding Mrs. Ford? Do you go back and forth a few different times or do you kind of have one story and you're like, I'm going to go with it? That's a really good question. So with Finding Mrs. Ford, we'll stick with that one for a while. I wanted to really play with the idea of a person who reinvents herself, mm -hmm. this idea of social climbing, mm -hmm. of, um, you know, the, you, uh, you know, the expat, the person who goes to a new place. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about being here in Rhode Island. You know, there are people who come to new places and really completely reinvent themselves. So I wanted to look at that. I had three things I wanted to have happen in the summer of 79 in this weird kind of quasi gangster disco. Yeah. So I knew I didn't have a full outline, but I knew these three pivot points I wanted to have happen. I knew the secret she was keeping. And I knew this moment of crescendo that I thought was going to be the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting thing happened when I got to that point, I realized, mm, this is the middle of the book. I want to look at this from a different point of view. Oh, cool. So that, so some of it's plotted and mm -hmm. planned and some of it, you kind of have to go with where you're being drawn to go. And then I wrote the story again, revealing different things and from a different person's point of view. Mm. Yeah, because like if you're writing from one person's point of view, even as you as the writer, you probably read it and like pick up on things that you might not have done it when you first initially wrote it. Like, oh, she's acting funny in the scene. Like, oh, maybe there's a connection to something. And you kind of, I mean, I would guess you like read it with new eyes and new things pop out. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You, you do exactly that. So, you know, as much as you plan it, there are things that happen. There are character developments where you find yourself thinking, gosh, I didn't know she'd do something like that. And <laughs> it takes you in a different direction. And so I didn't know how I was going to write that other character's point of view. And I was back in Detroit and I was driving around and my grandmother, my mother's mother came from Belgium. So mm -hmm. she was very Catholic and she always went to this particular church, St. Mary Magdalene. And as I was driving around Detroit, I drove to that church and I thought, ah, okay, I'm going to make this a part of that other character's life. I'm going to give her a foundational relationship with her grandmother yeah. and in this particular church. And it just gave me kind of a rootedness in that character mm. that I didn't even know I was looking for. And it's another full circle moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Another full circle moment. Exactly. I also think to uh, writing anything that includes multiple points of view helps fix like this kind of plot hole that always drives me nuts in some movies where like the movie will be from person X's point of view, but then something will happen between two characters and another room that person X would have never known about. Mm -hmm. Or if they're the ones telling the story, they have no clue this happened. So then I'm like, it breaks, it like breaks it for me in my head. But if you have that second point of view, you can make the person having the conversation that second point of view. So that is so important what you just said. Generally speaking in thrillers, you should never let your reader see around a corner that your character can't see mm -hmm. around. So yes, you either have to, there is sort of that omniscient point of view, which is harder to achieve because mm -hmm. it can be irritating where 
you know, the person writing the book is kind of hovering over it all. But I try to stick with a with a POV and mm. not reveal any of that stuff because it is it's unsettling. Yeah, there is a. Um, <clears throat> I used to read a ton, and I uh, I haven't read that much lately. Uh, but I used to love Stephen King. I read like almost everything that he wrote, and he has uh, a book series, the Dark Tower series, where he has a chapter by chapter and every there's like five main characters and every chapter's telling it from a different point of view. Right. So you get to kind of see the entire story unfold. And he bases that chapter on that person's point of view because the major plot point is going to happen to them here. So they can actually tell it from that angle mm -hmm. where if he did it from somebody else's, they wouldn't be able to tell that story. So he kind of found that way to work around it. Exactly. Too. No, that's very interesting. Uh, he has a wonderful book that came out last summer, Billy Summers. I don't know if you've Ooh, read I it yet. Read it's very yet. good. Yeah, very, very good. I love his stuff. And because yeah. it's it, it's always people consider him to be like a horror writer, which he is probably one of the best horror writers out there. But he also does a ton of books that aren't horror. <laughs> like, well, this one last summer, Billy Summers, is not horror. It's about uh, a guy who is a hired assassin and kind of a moral dilemma if he's going to take or not take this job. And uh, he's a very fine writer. I mean... And getting it, I think his thing too is like, because everybody has their quirks. Like he has a, a very wordiness to him. Sometimes you can skip entire pages <laughs> because he goes on about a leaf going down the street for 10 minutes. Right. But he has a really good way of getting into people's, like explaining people's thought processes mm -hmm. and sometimes in a really twisted way that you're like, how did you even get there? Right. You know, right. which is interesting. Everybody has their own kind of thing for the way that they write something and like their talent. And I think that's his talent is getting in somebody's head. I think so. And he, I mean, He's written a book on writing, which yep, is kind which of I a read. Bible. Yeah. It's a very and good book. It, it's amazing. And one of the things he really just pounds into your head is you have to write every day. Mm -hmm. Just write, 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 write. <laughs> and I love that his book on writing is just called On Writing. Exactly. <laughs> it's the best title. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah. Like, so if he says that you, when you're writing, you have to write every day, I'm assuming you had to do that. Like, you had to write every day to write, to finish this book. Yeah. So one of the things I, the way I structured my time, because a lot of writers will tell you they write every morning mm. and it's always this kind of sacred time for writing. Because I had responsibilities elsewhere with the Ocean House, with some other projects, I used my trusty iPhone and I plot out three oh, to six wow. hour windows. Cool. As I, Three for me is the minimum number of hours to really sit and get my head into it. Mm -hmm. Shorter than that, you're kind of just getting started before you stop. Mm -hmm. Six hours is a good stop time. I can go longer than that sometimes in crunch periods. So I would I go about three months into the future plotting out these. Plotting these times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it it's, we're, you know, we're so obedient to our technology. Oh my God, to our Google Calendar. <laughs> right. I need so, to go right now. <laughs> if it's on my phone, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, you have to. It's the weirdest thing. Do you, you said the thing about like it's um, sacred and maybe like a little ritualistic. So when you write, do you like have a hot cup of tea or do you make sure the window's open? Do you do anything like, like fun like that? Well, I try to always write in the same place. So if oh. I'm in, uh, we live mainly in Connecticut or if I'm up here, I have a room in each place where I write. Mm -hmm. And we are very Pavlovian, you know, we sit down at that place and we're suddenly our head is on with yeah, what we're doing. Your magic yeah. is tingling, like the mm -hmm. writing magic is coming out. And it's funny too, because I guess I never really thought put these two things together, but like you working in television and film and being an actress, like I feel like when you're an actor, like you have to like go into the character and you're doing that same thing now, just now you're writing about it. And that's so... 
such a weird like I didn't I've never even thought about that connection I'm like oh well, they're it, a good writer they're a good writer it's but. exactly the same yeah. but like you said about Stephen King you're trying to do it with all the characters in yeah. the book you're trying to find something about each character I mean I tend to pull parts from myself mm -hmm. whatever it is like if I have a habit of whatever let's say you crack your knuckles yep you can put that in a character or mm -hmm. let's say you eat pistachio nuts all day long you can put that put in that a character in. Or, or just these little kind of things that are recognizable mm -hmm. um or that you've seen in other people yep you're always working to do that and yeah a lot of character traits are based on somebody else that you know you spend a ton of time with mm -hmm. like you need to like live in it yeah because you need to right. see it happening yeah. yeah no so that's a really good point how far out of your own comfort zone can you go and have it be real mm. i write places that are real places i've written watch hill i've written detroit i've written los angeles i've written palm beach florida i've written pittsburgh i have ex extensive experience in all these places so for me, it makes sense. I can describe a street or a store, mm. or a, and I find that people really like that. Like they 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 recognize yeah. places, and you can feel like a place like a Providence, right? Even though they're both city, Providence and New York City. The minute you step foot in either of those places, there's a different vibe. Absolutely, and I feel like you, to write about it, you kind of have to know about it. Like you have to right feel like you know what you're not what you're talking about, but like you can describe it from your own sensations. Right. So I, I'm writing a fourth book right now and I was thinking of where I was going to make this, this character come from. And I thought, well, maybe Minnesota. And I thought, well, but if I write Minnesota, I'll be very vague because yeah. I don't know Minnesota. I know mm. Michigan. I, th mm -hmm. I think I kind of have to stick with that. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I mean, keeping that same comparison going like Stephen King, everything is based in New England. Yeah. That's where he lives. Oh, really? So he knows know the area. It's all Maine, right. New Hampshire, Vermont. It's like everything's there. Like you'll pass Derry on the way up north. Mm. And right. like he's had tons of stuff that's based there because he knows it. So you can, every, exactly. a lot of writers do exactly mm -hmm. the same thing because you can, you're intimately involved in it. So you can describe the little details and that's what And matters. that's what keeps the reader engaged because totally. if the writer goes vague, mm. the reader's going to disengage. Yeah. It's just so not. Start to vaguely not care about yeah, the book anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, exactly. it's funny. I don't, I don't read as much as I would like to. I think just with like craziness of, the, of life and then obviously tv is so easily at your fingertips but i was on twitter the other day and i i'm i like i said i'm a type 1 diabetic and in in my experience anytime someone is a diabetic in media it's always like they're either going in low blood sugar and it's causing some emergency there's a thriller that we were talking about where there's zombies and they forgot the son's insulin at home so if he doesn't get it he it's danger danger so those are the experiences that i've had seeing yeah diabetes in media i was on twitter the other day and i follow a bunch of diabetics and someone wrote a book called it's called blood sugar but it's a it's a thriller like a mystery thriller novel and the main character is a diabetic but her diabetes in no way encompasses the story like she just will be like she tests her blood sugar she takes her insulin but it's not like i don't have my blood i don't have my insulin like right. stuff's happening like something crazy is <clears throat> happening and it's so funny because i've never read something like that where i'm like you know i'm a we're in this interview and my little blood sugar thing just went off that doesn't affect the story it doesn't affect my well, overarching story but it's cool to have that part of the like cracking your knuckles like yeah. i test my blood sugar why well, like, i bet right, that it right. does have you read it yet did you get to read it yet i haven't read the entire thing but i'm i would bet that it does in some way affect it it drives something so like if you're if you're 
character has some major thing, like they're a big drinker. Like you mm, use that right. because they're going to end up meeting this other person at the bar on a night they shouldn't be there. And that's going to drive a story this well, way. Well, like Chekhov whatever. said about the gun, if if a gun appears on stage in act one, it's got to go gotta off by act three. Yeah. 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 But I also think that like, <clears throat> again, I haven't finished the book yet, right. but I also think that it can doesn't have to be a pivotal pop plot point the same way as someone might, you know, like you cough sometimes when you let you clear your throat. That's just a characteristic. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That's not going to like you're not going to clear your throat and someone's going to be like, Nick killed everyone because he killed his throat. <laughs> he cleared his throat right. and we heard it. So like for me, it's just interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Because like in her life, like in my life, in an interview or when I'm doing work or when I'm at my wedding, whatever, like being a diabetic has nothing to do with those things, but it's something that I always have to take care of. It's part of, it's like cracking your knuckles or doing whatever. It's just like one of those things that you well, have to it, But be. it's interesting that you say that. So I was uh, doing uh, an author talk at a bookstore with mm -hmm. Jane Green and Tia Williams the other day, and the conversation morphed into migraines. Mm. Tia is younger. She's still in really the grip of migraines. I used to have migraines. Mm. Jane has had migraines. So we're talking about all of that. Oddly, I am considering incorporating ocular migraines mm. into uh, a character. An ocular migraine is a really weird phenomenon, and I have had them, where your field of vision in the center kind of goes foggy at first, and then these prisms of light. Like an aura, right? Do you see like an aura? It's not so much an aura. It's like vivid, illuminated, neon uh and it's very geometric mm. pieces of colored light over oh, on the wow. side of my field of vision. And it lasts about 15 minutes. And it's oddly incapacitating mm. because the center of the field of vision is fuzzy, like mm. blurry, like everything's, you know, like you had a camera and you just yep, blurred the focus. focus. Yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking of incorporating that. And if I do incorporate it, it will play into a pivotal play. moment. Yeah. yeah. And not to say that the uh, diabe yeah. diabetes should not. But I also thought from what I've read of it so far, it's just interesting. Right. Yeah. Like, the, so what I was saying um, about it affecting the story yeah. isn't that it's a major plot point. Yeah. But it could be. Um, so because you ha have diabetes and like maybe this person doesn't have the monitor here. So yeah. they have to go get their supply to do uh, a test. Yeah. Uh, the prick. And that just lets them overhear something they shouldn't have overheard. Yeah. And it just gives you a reason to put the person somewhere. True, true, and true. And you, you would use that because it's something you know. Yeah. And you are you wouldn't even, might not even do it intentionally. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's just part of it. Yeah, it's not like a big, a big, huge climactic moment. Yeah, exactly. Right. I just thought it's very interesting. It is. Because yeah. I've never read something from a perspective like I have, right? Like when I go to work, I make sure I have my, my one phone, my insulin phone my yeah. my snack just in case but then that's it like it's not it's not like right. anything crazy just part of your day got it although my doctor oh when he um prescribes me insulin he's always like just in case of a zombie apocalypse i'm gonna give you like an extra vial just in case you never <laughs> little, know what's gonna little happen emergency and stuff. i'm like you know what you never know what's gonna happen so okay so really quick i want to this is kind of bringing it to rhode island but also still on the same track as like talking about your books um so the ocean house hosts an author series which i think is super cool because you like nurturing other businesses and writers and creatives i think is like so awesome so what made you start that and and what do you love about it well we started in 2019 mm -hmm. i had my first book coming out and there were several other watch hill authors who had books coming out and it was kind of loosey-goosey that summer 
2020, obviously, we know that that was a weird summer. <laughs> no, yes, we all know about 2020. Totally normal. <laughs> so then in 21 and now in 22, it has really become a thing. Mm-hmm. So I host every Wednesday another author. And we started by saying local authors. It is not local authors. We're getting <laughs> the best of the best. Not that local authors aren't the best yeah. of the best, but we're attracting from all over. It's amazing. And it's a really fun format. Mm. So Wednesday afternoons from five to six, I interview another author about his or her book. Uh, the ticket purchase price is very nominal. Mm. Um, I think it's like 25 to $35. And for that, people get the book, which is oh, really worth wow. the whole yeah. ticket price. Yeah. Yeah. And they get wine or soft drinks Love and that. hors d'oeuvres, and they get the view of the ocean. And it's yeah. just... Uh, it, so it's really cool. It's like that's a fun really cool. salon that's mm. developing. And who do we have coming up? I'm reading now Zane Asher's book. Mm-hmm. She's a, a Nigerian-British CNN reporter, oh. and she writes a book about how her mom kept it together when her dad died. Her mom was a pharmacist outside of London raising four children, and her husband, who was a doctor, died in this terrible accident. And just navigating raising all these children mm. to be successful in such circumstances. And Zane Asher, like I said, is a journalist. Her brother, Chuatel, I can't think of his last name. He was nominated for an Oscar for 12 Years oh my a Slave. God. Yeah, that's her oh, brother. Wow. She's coming. Oh, cool. August 10th. That's but like amazing. all four of these kids are superstars. Are and and- it, so it's a wonderful. Um, true story of rising above adversity. We have Zibby Owens coming and she's the podcast queen for Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. uh, Moms, I'm just a normal person. I don't have time. I'm just kidding. I'm going to get better. The lineup is incredible. (laughs) It just goes on and on. And what I think, I know you said it started local and now it's expanded. Mm -hmm. What I think is great about that Similarly to like PVD Fest, right? PVD Fest brings all its local artists, but it brings global artists to this one city. I think for Rhode Islanders in general, you know, we're this little tiny, puny, little amazing state that like having these big names come and talk about their work and you can see yourself in this person and and learn from this person and, 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 you know, the authors that you have coming, maybe they're big now, but maybe they started out at a tiny little place and hearing their journey. And I think that's really important. Um, I think Rhode Islanders, we are super proud of being from Rhode Island, but I think we can share the love, right? I think so. I think so. No, And it's funny, we just have started creating like a very clear description of what our series is, because mm-hmm. I've noticed that some writers have put on their websites that they're going to be talking to me mm-hmm. in Newport mm-hmm. or... They, they, it's like they can't quite get the lay of the land up here. So yeah. we decided, right, we're going to make this really... They think it's part of Long Island? Yeah. <laughs> Hold the cue cards really high. <laughs> watch Hill, that's what it is. That And Watch Hill, I think, I mean, like I said, I, I had just for the first time gone to um, Ocean House. It really is just such a beautiful, I mean, you see the ocean, you see the beautiful um, like garden like greens everywhere. It's just, it really is such a great place to sit and hear about books and, and have a glass of wine or a soft drink. 
and just meet and, and talk to people. And like you said, it's become like a salon. Like that's amazing. That's incredible. Well, and what's interesting is there there's a very illustrious past. So Ocean House was originally built in 1868. Mm-hmm. And we just had the writer Amanda Fairbanks, who wrote that incredible nonfiction book, The Lost Boys of Montauk, mm. about mm-hmm. one of those commercial fishing boats yes. that disappeared in that big storm in 1984, the perfect storm, same storm. Yep. So she came and I told her she did not know that her great-great-grand-uncle, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., in 1916, had made a silent film at the Ocean House called American Aristocracy. So I just sent her a DVD. So Douglas Fairbanks, the original, was a silent film star. And then Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was like a swashbuckling 1940s (laughs) movie star. Anyway, she's the great-great-niece or whatever she is of all these people. Mm. And she's a writer. So Again, full circle. She's now posting on her social media that she has this long family lineage that she didn't even know about at the Ocean House. Yeah. And it's bringing people, you know, again, with the local versus like sort of global situation, like anything that we can do as a as a collective Rhode Island team to get people outside of Rhode Island to come and see how beautiful and wonderful and all of its quirks and charms and beautifulness of the ocean and and, and uh, culture-ness of the city, like all these beautiful things apart that are a part of our state, you know, we it's nice to get that out there, you know, like to bring these authors that may never have come to Rhode Island otherwise. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I honestly just always find it a little bit, maybe it's just because I live here, but <laughs> I always find it a little bit um, surprising when I go other places and a lot of people don't even know what Rhode Island is or yeah. that it's a state. And I want to be like, did you learn any history <laughs> in school? Like it's an important state. It's one of the original states. Yeah, like important. a lot of stuff happened here. Like you don't know what it is. You always get when we would go down to South Carolina. That's why I made the joke earlier and, it would be, oh, yeah, we're from Rhode Island. Oh, is that part of Long Island? I'm like, oh no, no. No, it's wow. a state. It's its own state. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> Did you wow. learn the states? <laughs> That's no. incredible. We, well, now that we're on the Rhode Island topic, so you are part of one of the owners of Ocean House, which is mm-hmm. unbelievable. You restored it. I read mm-hmm. restoring it. What? First of all, how did you come across Ocean House? So this is a good story. Um My husband, Chuck, has been coming to Watch Hill, Rhode Island since the 80s. We met and married in the early 2000s after I went through this rough divorce. Uh, I certainly knew Rhode Island. I knew Providence. I always joke, all my husbands went to Brown. (laughs) (laughs) People always look at me and say, "Uh, how many of you had? (laughs) So some weird fluke i married two different men who went to brown can't explain it was not an intent but (laughs) that happened so i didn't know about watch help so i started coming here in 2000 and we got married in 2002 in 2004 a developer had bought the ocean house a guy from new canaan connecticut Mm -hmm. and he was going to knock it down and put in 11 houses. Now, from Washington, D.C., all the way up to Maine, the, the coast of the Atlantic Ocean was dotted with these beautiful, big, wooden Victorian hotels mm-hmm. that one by one, many of them have disappeared due to fire, due to, you know, whatever happened over the years. The 1930s were pretty catastrophic uh, on properties of that size. So this was one of the last, the last ladies standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, great lady hotel. So he was going to knock it down and people in Westerly, which is the main town there and Watch Hill had bumper stickers, save the ocean house and 
Chuck and I were talking and we're like, somebody ought to do this. So he took it on kind of crazy. Mm. And I think we often take on projects of that magnitude only if we have no idea what we're doing. Yeah, that's the only way you will say yes. Right? You would never take it on round two. So he took it on and spent years and years from from 2004 to 2010 when we finally reopened. And how it evolved, it became a replication rather than a restoration, which all the preservation groups were a little skeptical of. The hotel has since won excuse me, all kinds of preservation awards. So in the process, there's there's a term of art called harvesting. So 5,000 architectural elements from the stones of the fireplace to light fixtures to, you know, the front desk and so on were taken out of the building, taken off site, stored in a warehouse. The building was taken down. A much larger hole in the ground was created for gyms and spas mm-hmm. and billiard rooms mm-hmm. and squash courts and movie theaters and on and on and on. And when it went back up, there was a year that was picked, which was, I think, 1906 or eight. I can't remember, which was kind of when Ocean House was at her most beautiful. So if you put a transparency of today's Ocean House over what it looked like then. It would look exactly the same. There's a reason we don't have super high ceilings because we kept the window heights exactly the the same same. as they were. Um, We don't have screens in the front facing windows because there were no screens. Mm -hmm. So Ocean House looks virtually the same as she did, except that all the ugly exterior fire escapes are gone (laughs) and some of the unattractive add-ons have been made more beautiful. Mm. So that was that whole process, which was really seven years until reopening. That's crazy. And we always say like when you first, like you're being naive is your greatest asset when you're starting a project. So much so. Because if you start it after when you're a little bit older, you have a little more experience, you'd say no. So being naive and starting something, not saying that he's naive, but like you don't know what you're getting into. Well, it's absolutely true. We've done other smaller projects. We did the Week Pog Inn. Mm -hmm. We did the Margin Street Inn. And now the United Theater. You have to go to the United mm, Theater yes. in Westerly. It's beautiful. It's movies. Mm-hmm. It's live. I, I it's, saw it yeah. probably about a week before it was due to open when the, all it's the pretty construction cool, was We did like a whole, yeah. a whole article about the restoration. We did and, some article yeah. on that. And then I also did... Um, we did some influencer stuff with the Publix Radio mm. who have the office Oh, there. that's great. That's and great. So I was kind of in and out of there a few times. Mm. Yeah, it looks so, it looks I'm awesome. I'm so glad. And I just saw Elvis there. You have to see Elvis. <gasps> I want to see Elvis. Oh, I've heard it's so awesome. So bad. So Baz Luhrmann, he's such a brilliant director and I think mm. only a foreigner could have really had this mm. anthropological look at Elvis Presley, yeah. who he was, the culture he grew up in, being a white, poor, poor, poor white kid mm. in, I think, Mississippi, Mississippi before he yeah. went to Memphis, in kind of this black, white culture, which is really particular. It's wonderful. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. I'm dying to see it. Yeah, I've heard the actor did an incredible job. Too. He's pretty amazing. Yeah. Baz Luhrmann, yeah. well, Moulin Rouge is like has always been one of Isn't my it great? favorite movies. Me too. Of all time. And to the point when I when it when I was really into it, I would just like listen to the soundtrack every mm-hmm. day. I just loved it so much. And I feel like I've seen other things from him that are also I love, but I feel like Elvis is the first movie from him since Moulin Rouge that feels like it would like pull you in and you would just be like 
in this world. Like you want to hear the music, you want to like be in the the lights and like the all the action happening. So I'm Absolutely. so excited to it's see it. It's big. There's there's a scope to it that's very large. And it's yeah. funny you mentioned Moulin Rouge because the book I have coming out in January, it's a very complicated story that's mm -hmm. got a true crime basis. Mm -hmm. It's called Reef Road, which Ooh. it's set in Palm Beach. And there's a writer who's obsessed with the murder of her mother's best friend. My mother's best friend was murdered. Oh and then there's this whole other story of a younger wife uh, whose husband comes from Argentina mm -hmm. and disappears a few weeks into the pandemic on a plane to Buenos Aires and she can't follow. But I'm coming to Moulin Rouge. I just had to do, you do playlists for your book club kits. I don't know if you go to authors' websites, but um, every book has a, a book club kit with all these components, including a playlist. And one of the songs I picked was that that version of Roxanne <gasps> that they did in Moulin Rouge. It's a great version oh of that song. Oh my God, I love it. Remember that? Oh my God, yeah. yes. That is so, I feel like that would be, I mean, obviously <clears throat> I'm not a writer, so I'm sure writing the book is probably your favorite part, but me as someone who just likes music, I feel like making the playlist would be my favorite The playlist part. is fun. And the one thing I haven't done for my books for the book club kids is a signature cocktail. So Ooh. I have to go back and put in signature cocktails. That's cool. It's a thing, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. It's funny too, because I don't think I've ever actually watched Moulin Rouge. <gasps> all the way through, but oh I know God. most of the songs because I was in like chorus and mm. like performance related stuff mm -hmm. through high school and just after. So I know watch almost it. all so the songs good. from it, but yeah. I don't think I've ever seen the actual movie. OMG. It's, oh, it holds up. It's yeah. so yeah. good. It's honestly, it's just you and, like. You and McGregor's in that, right? Yeah. And yeah. That's right. Kidman. And Nicole Kidman. Yeah. It's so yeah. theatrical and ridiculous, but like the story is so good. Oh my God. It's a lot I could of, go like, on and I, on and my, on. I love the like. um what do you want to call it? Like song mashup yeah, stuff yeah, that they yeah. do, like all the medley yeah. things are really well done and really mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. And I think the word you could use now, they use it for writers. There's a meta quality mm. in yeah, that yeah. it's self-referential. You yes. have a director looking at making a movie almost. Yep. Mm -hmm. You have a sense that he's aware yeah. and he's letting you know that he's aware. That's and cool. Yeah, so you feel like you're in on you're something. You're in on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, Nick, you got to see Milan. Right? I just mm -hmm. feel that's like, your homework for tonight. I feel like too. There's not a lot of uh, for movies. Like there's a, a lot of books that still come out that are great, but there's not a lot of original shows and movies anymore. Mm. It's a lot of remakes of mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. And I was just watching. I was making the comic because I watched like Forrest Gump yesterday, mm -hmm. which like that concept when you actually think about what the concept of that movie was like. Mm -hmm. Nobody's done something like that yeah. in a long time. Short Not in a like, long time. The yeah. other one that had a very slightly similar theme was Being There mm. with Peter Sellers. Did you ever see oh, that? I feel like I have. Oh, my gosh. That holds up. So I just rewatched it for whatever reason. Peter Sellers plays a man of, you know, limited cognitive abilities mm. who has been the worked in this estate mm. and in I think Baltimore or Washington, D.C. He's an employee. He works in the garden. And the the old patriarch dies and, you know, the, the maid is leaving and the real estate agents are coming in and the house is, is going to seed and it's going to be sold. And he kind of wanders off into the city and meets Shirley MacLaine. And he, he starts to be seen as this oracle. Mm. Uh, he... His name is Chauncey. He doesn't even have a last name. So they they take him on as sort of the advisor to the president of the United States. <laughs> it's very satirical. Oh, that sounds It's wonderful. much more satirical than Forrest Gump. Yeah. It's brilliant. The, just the way that they did that movie, like, because I always just thought of it as a funny movie, but I was really thinking about yeah. Forrest mm -hmm. Gump and, like, how much goes into it and the story arc of it and the way they kind of, like, have him influence, like, 
every major U.S. <laughs> thing that well, happened. And yeah. it was just really cool. And the way they did use special effects in that movie, too, back then, which were kind of beyond their time, as I, I thought it was awesome. See them as a double feature. You have to see Baby. Yeah, yeah I'm going to have see the see parallels. Yeah. I thought I had, but then when you just described it, I was like, I don't think I've actually seen mm-hmm. that yet. So and I'm, Moulin Rouge. I'm putting that on Moulin my Rouge list. on that list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm dying to see Elvis. So the United Theater, go see. Is playing at the United Theater? Elvis it is. is playing? It oh, is right now. Oh, my now. God. So you yeah. can... Two birds, one stone. See the movie and see the United Theater. Um, your time in Rhode Island, obviously, you know, you, it's been so much fun getting to talk about like so many things. But I'm going to bring it to Rhode Island for a hot more second and then we can talk about other movies. Okay. Um, you So you spend your time in Watch Hill and Westerly. I and do. And you've spent time in Providence. Mm-hmm. What do you like about living in Rhode Island? Like what are some of your things that like you find fun about living here? So when I was a kid, uh, I'm dating myself, but I've been dating myself this whole interview. <laughs> I loved a television show called The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. And mm-hmm. then I got older and I saw the old movie of it. And so I had this obsession with the coast of Maine being mm-hmm. from suburban Detroit. And for me, and I've been to Maine and Maine is obviously beautiful, but Rhode Island is very much that. It's that very dramatic rocky coast, mm-hmm. also beaches, just the the most beautiful landscape. I drove here today. I drove through some country roads through Ashaway and mm-hmm. little towns like that. Mm-hmm. It's really a beautiful state. I lived in California for eight years and I am not a desert person. No. I always feel like there's some weird survivalist mentality yeah. that kicks yeah. up in me. I'm like, <laughs> We're Where's not going to be able to survive here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of the thing with like yeah. LA and stuff. Like, it shouldn't be there. Like, it right. had to be made to be there. Yeah. That's and that's exactly why there's right. a lot of issues with energy and you know, right. all that stuff because right. it's artificial. Like, yeah. If you just let it go to seed, it would just be a desert. Yeah. All you need <laughs> are three things to go wrong, and then you're done. Yes. Yeah. 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 Whereas exactly. here, you could kind of catch a fish. You yeah. Know, you could put out a rain to. bucket. Yeah, yeah. You could make it work if you have to. Yeah. Being somewhere where, I mean, obviously, I know this is like something that a lot of people say, but the seasons are just, and being in a place where the seasons are just so beautiful because we have the ocean, because we have, you know, beautiful foliage, like you really can, like, just. You could sit in a chair and just like watch the seasons go by and be like very happy. Like you could. it's it's un it's yeah. New England in general is very pretty. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's unbelievable. Is it your favorite place that you've lived out of all? I'm just kidding. I, you don't I, have to answer it, that. Yes, in many ways. And I'll tell you the the other thing that you get from the coast is a slight slight. People will disagree with me because mm. it does get cold here, but it sure is milder than the Midwest because that's an interior climate. Mm-hmm. You know that. Because when you when you don't have the buffeting effect of yeah. the oceans, it's just that much colder, that much longer. Mm-hmm. When you are when you spend time here, and I know you've also um, restored a bookstore in Westerly too. We have correct? the Savoy, yeah, yep. which is I a beautiful bookstore. Yeah. Oh my god! When yeah. I was reading that, I was like, oh, the Savoy. I love the, the Savoy. Savoy. The wonderful part about that, like, but where the United Theater with Savoy, yeah. like that, like really kind of um, New England old school yes. charming main street vibe oh. there is awesome yeah it's well really and good. i think really that's what we all want to go back to mm. is a main street setting mm. you know where where you can walk from shop to shop and where the shop owners are people you know and i, I just think it it leads to a, a much higher quality of life and i think one of the benefits of you know this whole zoomiverse that that is possible now 
is I think you increasingly have younger people who do not have to live necessarily in New York or Boston uh-huh. or Chicago, and they can live in more really livable cities like yeah. Westerly. Yeah. I mean, New York City lost like a few hundred thousand people That's or something right. like that yeah. during the pandemic because people are like, I don't have to live here. Mm-hmm. Why would I pay all this money to live in a 500 mm-hmm. square foot uh, apartment 20 floors up and <laughs> with no windows closet, <laughs> like, right. why would i do that you can live anywhere you want i think that you're so right both of you about the main street sort of living and how important it is because i so i'm from cumberland originally mm-hmm. cumberland rhode island which there is no like town center i guess the town center would probably be like where the high school is and there's a few mm-hmm. businesses but it's not something it's not walkable like it's not it's a very busy main street right there it's not easy it's from where i lived not very easily accessible. It's a few mile walk on all main road. So I grew up in that sort of environment. I lived in Providence. My husband and I had a condo in like down city. It was more walkable, but not the easiest also walkable. We now live on the east side in that Hope Street area. It is, we've never walked more in our lives in in this little area there's restaurants there's shops there's a pharmacy there's a liquor store there's a gift store for Mm. baby like there's so many things in that one little area and we always say we're very cheesy we're very like very happy people we'll go to dinner and we'll walk home and then we'll be like can you believe we just walked home from dinner (laughs) like how cool is that like people don't get to experience that and and we're so lucky that we you know, we found a house that we love and an area that we love, but it's just like being able to access things like th- that are kind of like right in your backyard. It really is like a game changer. And yeah, and what you guys are doing with Savoy and the United Theater and all that stuff, like you said, Nick, is really bringing mm-hmm. that sort of culture back. Which and is there's really cool. so many people walking around mm-hmm. and it, it really changes things. I, I was saying to someone, they should think about um, one of the things I, I've seen in Delray, Florida, which is a very cute little town with a main street. Mm-hmm. They do valet parking for the block. So oh, in other cool. words, you don't have to be going to a particular restaurant mm. yeah. to access a valet. That you can be going to any shop or restaurant. Yeah. They should do that in Wickford too. Because Isn't that parking smart? Over there is awful. <laughs> <laughs> but I think and people would pay for oh, 100%, that. Yeah. Just to oh, have that conveniently. Yeah. Yeah. yeah small many... enough little areas. You don't uh-huh. need to park well, in front of the place you're going. Even times that I've valeted my car and like usually if I go out to dinner, like a nice dinner with friends, there's usually like a dinner and then there's like an after dinner, like mm-hmm. cocktail or dessert, whatever. And it's always like, can we leave our car here? Or right. do we have to go like bring it to the next place? And like that sort of idea. Yeah, so smart because you yes you yeah. just leave it there <laughs> she's safe there yeah i think um bringing that sort of like main street feeling back not back i know it's it's never went away but just like really putting nurturing it right like nurturing it to feel new yeah, and a, exciting we have a few of them in rhode island which is pretty nice i know uh, uh, one of the towns i love is uh i can't think of the name of the town there's a bookstore called uh inkfish books oh Oh, what's the town? Oh it's not so cute. Wickford, is it? Just I think maybe me. it is. It's. I feel like it's a W. <laughs> I think it is. I'm so it bad. I that's honestly, a great bookstore. It is a great bookstore. Fabulous mm-hmm. town. Yep. Uh, I've done book stuff there, and then you know walked around, mm-hmm. had lunch. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I didn't know, being from it's in Warren. Warren. Yeah. Warren. Oh, W. Okay. Being from Westerly, another W, but a slightly different part of the state. Yeah. So I'm at my little book signing and I'm looking out the window at a store that's advertising in beautiful old writing, like on a pharmacy, coffee cabinets. And I'm thinking, 
what type of a piece of furniture <laughs> is a coffee cabinet? That's a very is Rhode Island like, thing right there. Is it like, do you just serve your coffee there? Do you just, just coffees then there? Yes. What oh is God. that? And then it was explained to me that mm -hmm. it's like a milkshake or a frap. Or, yep. It is. Yeah. Cabinet. I feel, and that's kind of a term that's, it's a very Rhode Island term that's kind of going away. Right. And there's not yeah. as many people that I didn't know what that was until anymore. very recently, to be okay, honest. Okay, so I feel, feel better. better. Yeah. But this, this store like is so charming. Like, well, like no. Hot wieners is not everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> True. And, and supposedly that began in Rhode Island. Yeah, I would imagine. Supposedly. Even though yeah, it's New I didn't, York I didn't know what a cabinet was until actually last year. We did an article about iconic Rhode Island foods, mm -hmm. and cabinet was none of it. And I was like, isn't that a milkshake? Like, I was so confused, yeah. but mm -hmm. then I looked it up and then I realized, well, you were wrong, girl. It is it is a Rhode Island thing. More things to love about Rhode Island. Exactly. We love Rhode Quirky. Island. Well, it's been so much fun having you here. I know we've yeah, been we've chatting. Taken up quite a bit of your time. I know. This was so lovely. Thank I, you. I loved, uh, thank you for taking the time to explain and, and kind of go through some of the things mm -hmm. that went through your life. I It was so much fun getting to learn more about you and the ocean house and your writing and your process. So I'm really excited that you are here and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. Yay! Thank you so much. Thank you. And then um, we always just like to give people, uh, you know, any information. Uh, what's the best way to find things that are going on at Ocean House? Uh, is there a website or to follow you for your books? Oh, yeah. Or? So I'm very active on Instagram. Great. And my Instagram page is Deborah Goodrich Royce Official because there were a couple of fake me's <laughs> out there. Uh, Ocean House has a vibrant website. Yes. And I have a, a really good website, which is also access to everything I'm doing, DeborahGoodrichRoyce.com. Yeah, I loved. I Wonderful. I was like scrolling through your website. It's so informational. I was. It was. I loved it. It was Thank so you. easy to navigate, and it was pretty looking, and I loved it. So. Thank you. Kudos okay. to you. Um. So yeah, follow along Ocean House. Follow along. You have a new book being released. Yes, Reef Road so... is coming January the 10th, and I'll Ooh. be doing something, I think, at the United Theater in oh, January, cool. the date to come. Okay, awesome. Yeah, right. we'll we'll stay updated on that. Maybe we'll have you back on for that. Thank you. That would be yeah, pretty cool. Be Thanks so much. Of course. Thank yeah. you all. Have a Thank great day. Thank you for your time, and have a good one, everybody. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you.